Hello and welcome to The Aside, a podcast for drama teachers and students. I'm Nick Waxman and today we will be treated to an interview with Anthony Crowley, writer, director of Motormouth Love Suckface, presented at La Mama Theatre as part of the 2018 BCE Theatre Studies Unit 4 playlist. This is part three of the interview. If you haven't yet listened to part one or part two, I encourage you to go back and listen to that. What are some of the theatre styles in this piece? It's musical theatre, so we, we, we use songs to, um, for irony. We use a lot of, we, we, we use pop music to create irony in places, and then we also use it to flip the irony into, we hope, pathos. Um, and we also use um, direct address to fast track um, the audience's window into relationships. Uh, So one of the characters, Zach, is in a relationship with Sarah and Sarah is with him in an intimate um, moment, and when I say intimate, I don't mean like they're you know they're just they're with each other and they're having an intimate conversation, and the character of Zach immediately turns to the audience and starts to portray his girlfriend to the audience by telling them all about how he feels um, and that she doesn't know he feels. So he's using um, dramatic um, irony as a tool to both get the audience. Um, you know, uh, informed on the relationship, but also he's also betraying his girlfriend at the same time to the audience by telling them how he feels while she's professing love to him. And he's kind of saying to them, I really don't love her. And I don't know, I don't know what to do about this, you know, and I just wish he'd shut up and, you know, and, and in a gentle way, kind of mocking the things that she likes to do. And she's totally unaware. She pours her heart out in song um, to him on stage while he is talking to the audience. And so, yeah, so there's a couple of things and we use that um, in a couple of places, uh, mostly through song, um, but often um, through, sometimes through dialogue as well. Um, And the lead character, Blasco, is also trying to keep the audience uh, ahead of of the uh, plot a little bit. So she directed that. You know, she directed dresses us as well, and uses that Shakespearean um, that Shakespearean model to do that. Plus, you know, we don't have a lot of. You know, we're using props and we're using very basic sets. So everything is kind of like that kiddie that kiddie lo-fi kind of theatre where the audience is really being asked in that Brechtian way to buy in to what's happening. Um, and it's also political in a sense. You know, we put, we put global warming on the table and it's, it's, you know, it's, it's not long before you know where the heart of the show is set. So in that way, you know that we're tackling, you know, um, a political... Um, kind of issue in a human way too so there's that too so it's it's not scared to kind of um 
to satirize. It also, you know, there's a lot of satire in Motormouth. The parents are both highly satirical characters. There's no other way to describe them. Even though at their heart, the actor has to play love of a parent and they admire their daughter and they love their daughter and they are proud of their daughter. All that stuff's real and is in their subtext, but their language is highly satirical. So lots of elements of, of epic theatre in, in that piece, not just the over coincidental overlapping with musical theatre. It's, it's actually intention from the playwright, director, designer, uh, for the audience to be aware of the play they're watching and to really think about the themes. Absolutely. That, that, that there is that invitation at the very beginning to buy in. And if you don't want to buy in, at that moment where we have a zombie on stage singing a country and Western song in an American accent um, called I'd rather be a zombie. And then we chainsaw him or her to um, down. And then you never hear an American accent for the rest of it. So there's an implication there. Um, from that moment where the, where, where the girl Blasco steps forward with what is obviously a prop chainsaw, having just murdered a zombie singing a country Western song, that's your invitation right there. And you know, she's. I've been working on the opening monologue because I think the um, the invitation should also involve other dimensions, and it should involve, you know, what the, the journey that the whole audience is about to embark on, which is you know, crazy, convoluted sci-fi meets love story, meets zombie epic, meets political, you know, piece of theater. And so, if they all go, if they swallow that at the start, and they all go. Okay, <laughs> then we've got a show and we're in. And if anybody goes, oh, damn, well, then I guess <laughs> they're going to have a long two hours. I'm wondering if it shares anything with farce. Is it so highly exaggerated that to not follow the plot would be totally fine? Or is it actually quite important that you're following along? Well, that's a really good question, Nick. And, and the answer is it's really important that the audience does follow the plot. Um, the moment the plot becomes, oh, the plot doesn't really matter. I think that you won't care as much about the choices that the actors, that the characters and the actors make in the play. I think that that's probably the most difficult thing about the show is the plot is complex. Um, that we need to understand what's at stake at any given time. And if we don't, we won't really care enough. Um, so that's a great question. The answer is yes, we need to understand it and we need to want to understand it. We, I think we want to be interested in piecing together clues and working out what's happened because I've sort of broken the, you know, the cardinal rule of storytelling, which is, you know, you either tell a complex story in a simple way or you tell a simple story in a complex way. Um, and of course I'm telling you in one sense, a complex story in a complex way. In another sense, it's a simple story. It's just a whole bunch of people trying to find love and, you know, not always succeeding in a world that's quite lurid. Um, but there's a specific, I guess there's a world, you know, like it's, it's that thing, you know, we, have you seen Coco, the movie? Not yet, but I did hear you rave about it. 
It was really cool. And they did a wonderful job, those guys always do, of doing something that's quite complex because they have to establish an entire world and a way of thinking in that. Like there's a hierarchy in the dead world of Mexico and there's a certain rules to the world in Mexico. And for the audience to really care about the characters, they have to understand all of the different rules and what's at stake. So it's quite a sophisticated piece of storytelling. Uh, in the same way that Motormouth is as well, um, and why I'm working at the moment on um, trying to help the audience uh, wrap their head around the most important parts of the world, the rules, the rules of this world, um, as quickly as possible so that we can tell it in a disjointed way and that actually makes the story more pleasurable for the audience because they're trying to kind of, oh, okay, oh, I see, okay, so she's, oh, that, right, oh, I wonder what, I wonder what's going to happen. Oh, I bet that's going to happen. Oh, it didn't happen. That happened. Oh, I was right. That happened. That kind of thing um, is the game that the audience gets to play rather than catch up football. <laughs> you know, where yeah. they're kind of going, ah, oh, this is kind of funny and interesting. I'm not too sure what's happening. Oh, hope it gets easier in the next half an hour. Oh, there it is. Rather than that experience. How would an audience best prepare to view this work? Well, definitely, definitely reading the play is a good is a good starting point because then they'll know what the actors have to deal with and what the journey that the actor takes from going from one place um, to the other. Um, there's a couple of songs online that they could listen to to kind of get the vibe for it before they before they came if they wanted to. Um, but I think if they hmm. That's a really good question because I'm a big believer that people should come um, and be able to enjoy something or get into something or be stimulated by something without having to, you know, like bring a whole lot of stuff in. And I go to a lot of trouble to sort of like help them with that. But if they were to investigate just as a, an interesting thing, um, the quantum theory of consciousness which might be fascinating for them about how perhaps and um, and cosmic wormholes if they introduced a little science to their lives being theatre people um, because I've certainly had to research a lot about um, the science and quantum theory and wormholes and string theory and other dimensions and the quantum theory of consciousness and which is probably just a crazy theory, but I've kind of using it. Um, and, and, uh, I can't think of it. I think that would be a really good place for them to start to maybe just ask a few, as well as the obvious issues of, you know, global warming and, and which I'm sure that they, Oh, the other thing that they might do is they might try to identify um, the language of rhetoric that's used by politicians and used by spin doctors and, you know, when things go wrong generally. How people try to, you know, how people talk themselves around um, situations that they don't want to commit to anything or they want to, you know... Um, minimize the fallout from how 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 people and politicians and business you know look anybody really 
but particularly, I suppose, spin doctors and marketing people and politicians use language to nullify uh, action and change because it's interesting. Uh, and rhetoric becomes very important, I think, in their world because Donald Trump's using it uh, at the moment and no one's quite sure whether he's crazy like a fox or just crazy when he calls King Jong-un rocket man and um, fire and fury. All of that's rhetoric. All of that is his instinctive, I'm sure, response to another personality he's trying to control. Um, but it is just another form of rhetoric, you know, and, and in that way, it serves the same purpose as other forms of rhetoric. And uh, that's something that they might find interesting to bring into the room a little bit. That's some information about that. Thank you for coming on the podcast, Anthony Crowley. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. And, and I look forward to meeting anyone who comes to see our show. That is the end of part three of our interview with Anthony Crowley. For more information on where to see Motormouth Love Suckface, go to lamama.com.au. That is all from us at The Aside. Thanks to Aaron Searle for providing the music and Eltham College for letting us record here. There's a range of episodes in the bank, so feel free to listen to one that grabs your attention. Do not hesitate to email us at asidepodcast at outlook.com. Send us a question and we can answer it in a future podcast. Thanks for listening. <laughs>